Good morning, Faith Family. Hey, it is good to see you. Really good to be back and uh, just enjoyed some time over the last uh, few weekends to uh, be with my family. But man, have I missed my faith family. Really have missed my faith family. So it's a joy to be back with you. I'm really great. Hey, love you too. Thank you so much. My mom is sitting on the phone. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. It is great to be back. I am so thankful for the team that we have here at Brian and how they have stepped up and done a marvelous job continuing to shepherd you in the Word, and just grateful for them. And uh, uh, we shared with you last week that we've kind of altered course a little bit. Our plan was to start a brand new series uh, this morning, and we're going to put that off next week because a a lot's kind of happened while I've been gone. And uh, you have, for instance, the Supreme Court decision and things like that. And I just really felt like God put on my heart to, to share a message of hope for us as the people of God. I, I asked some of our church leaders and uh, asked them to speak into my, my feeling on this, and they affirmed the need uh, to say something and to ask, how does the gospel frame the way we think about the world in which we live? How do we as the people of God live with hope with the things that we're dealing with around us? And so I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you're challenged this morning. I'm actually not preaching on the issue itself, but the larger narrative of look at the world around us. How are we as the people of God going to live based on the challenges we face? And I'm going to take that from 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and if you're able to stand, please do so for the reading of God's Word as we uh, begin in verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words, "'Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul.'" Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity we have now to look to your word. I'm, I'm grateful that in moments like this that we see the world in which we live, we can turn to your word for instruction and guidance, that we are not sheep without a shepherd. You have given us direction of how we are to live in the world in which you've placed us. So would you encourage us, we pray this morning, through the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Honk if you love Jesus. At least that's what the bumper sticker said. It was a story that my youth pastor shared with me when I was a teenager about a time when his mom was driving behind a guy who on his back bumper had a bumper sticker that said, honk if you love Jesus. She loved Jesus. (laughs) 
So she honked and she honked again and she honked again. I mean, she really loved Jesus. And just a few minutes after that, she passes the guy. He looks at her through his window and gives her a certain hand gesture. Let's just say he thought she was number one, if you know what I mean. And she was shocked at that. Like she could not believe his response. She thought, how can a guy with a bumper sticker that says, honk if you love Jesus, respond with such rage? I thought about that when I came across a study that was conducted by Colorado State University on the issue of road rage. Some of you are about to fall under conviction, all right? (laughs) And what they did is they looked at some of the factors that were involved in people who expressed road rage, and one of the discoveries they came up with, which I thought was very fascinating, was that people who have bumper stickers on their car are more likely to express road rage. Some of you right now are thinking, what bumper stickers do I have on my car, right? And the more bumper stickers one had, the higher level of road rage they would express. And what was also interesting to me was that it did not matter the content of the bumper sticker. So whether or not your bumper sticker says, honk if you love Jesus, or honk if you're Amish, didn't matter. That's funny right there. I don't care who you, some of you will get that later, but that's funny. It did not matter if the content was world peace or my kid beat up your honor student. It did not matter if the bumper sticker said, be kind to animals or so many cats, so few recipes. That's wrong. That's wrong. I'm going to get emails for that right there. Doesn't matter what else I say today. It didn't matter if the bumper sticker said, vote Obama, vote Romney, or vote Obi-Wan Kenobi. After all, he's our only hope. Regardless of the content, the study showed that There was an expression of road rage, and I thought, that's so silly. I mean, is that really true until I read their conclusion? And it made sense. They said the reason is often people with bumper stickers have a need for self-expression. We're the guy that wants to be known for believing in this. We're the lady who wants to be known for the person who supports that. And if that need for self-expression isn't guarded, it can spill over into rage. Faith family, there is no denying that the culture around us is changing. Many of the core convictions that we have as Christians, many of the deeply held biblical values that we have are being abandoned, they are being rejected, they are being redefined. Whether it is marriage and family and sexuality, like with the Supreme Court decision, whether it is a a racist hatred, like we saw just a few weeks ago, a man who sits in a one-hour prayer service only to end it with bloodshed. 
Whether it is the fact that we live in a culture still where many regard life in the womb as nothing more than medical waste, under the slogan of individual rights, nations rage, terror threatens. And as we see all these things happening around us, the question is, how are we, as the people of God, going to respond? Are we going to rage? As we see so many of our convictions going in the opposite direction of the culture, are we going to rage against the culture or are we going to be driven into a hopeless despair? How does the gospel inform the people of God in how we are to respond? That's precisely what the Apostle Peter writes about as he writes to these Christians. The people who are gathered around reading this letter that the Apostle Peter writes are going through a cultural crisis. Friends, they are under the governmental rule of Nero. Nero's idea of a good time is destroying Christians. He hates them. He doesn't care at all if they are all done away with. The Roman historian Tacitus writes this, Besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to illuminate the night. Imagine being a Christian in that culture. And as if that wasn't bad enough, it's not just a political crisis that these Christians are facing. There is a moral crisis that is taking place within the culture. Let me remind you how the Apostle Paul writes about the culture when he writes a letter to Rome. Romans chapter 1, he talks about that God gives them up to dishonorable passions. What's going on? Their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations for women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, anybody, I'm not, this is not chicken little, the sky is falling. Let's be honest. When we look at the culture, we see a lot of people that do not acknowledge God. Amen? God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. So we're not picking on one sin over the other. There was evil and covetousness and malice. People were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Why? For the wages of sin is death. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Faith family, look right here. What we see around us today is not new. So what do we do? Pack it in? 
Live as though we have no hope? Do we rage and do we fight and do we crusade? Peter tells the people of God precisely how the gospel calls us to respond and how to live with hope. First of all, he says that the gospel reminds us of our identity. Notice back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says this. And in chapter 1, he's writing about the trials that they're facing, the suffering that they're going through, the difficulty that they're experiencing. And in chapter 2, he says this. Let me remind you, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. What does Peter do? Peter takes this Old Testament language where God called Israel out from the nations and he entered into a covenant with them and and they no longer were identified with other nations. They were his people. They were his possession. And Peter takes that language and he applies it to Gentiles living under Roman rule. Why? How does that help my situation? How does that help me in my family crisis? How does that help me in a cultural crisis? How does that help me in the suffering that we are facing or may one day face? It's simply this. The reason that you will be tempted to despair, the reason you will be tempted to outrage is because you've forgotten who you are. Don't forget, people of God, we belong to God. That didn't change a week ago. Regardless of the challenges that you see around us, don't forget your ultimate citizenship isn't Roman. And I know this is controversial for Fourth of July weekend, but most of the time I say something controversial. Our citizenship is not first and foremost American. It is Christian. Our citizenship is seated right now this morning at the right hand of God. We are citizens of another kingdom. And the reason why there's often so much of a tension for us and a feeling of despair and outrage is most of us, particularly if you're older than me, which is pretty much all of you in the room. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Is that we have grown up in a culture, to be honest, where the values of the culture and the values of Christianity were almost synonymous. I mean, to be a Christian was almost, well, duh. Who doesn't hold these things? Who doesn't believe these things? Look at me, faith family. Right now, that day is over. That day is over. Now, we can pray for revival, and we should pray for revival and a healing of our land, but the culture in which we are living and the trends in which we are seeing, that day is over, and as an American, it breaks my heart. As a Christian, my hope is secure. Because as one commentator wrote, I love this, Christianity wasn't born in Mayberry. 
It was born out of a Roman Empire hostile to the idea of a crucified and risen Savior. What that means, faith family, is if the opinion polls of American culture make you feel like you're in the minority, if your Christian faith makes you feel like a stranger in your own country or a stranger in your own family, you're right where you're supposed to be because you don't belong here ultimately. Remember who you are. You are God's possession. Once you weren't a people, now you are God's people. It's why in verse 11 he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. It's like what the writer of Hebrews says, Here we have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. Now, if your mind is engaged, you may be running somewhere that you do not need to go. And so let me be very clear on what I'm not saying. Nor is Peter saying this. In fact, just the opposite. We'll see it in just a moment. He is not saying, nor am I, that you don't care about your culture. We as Christians of all people should care about the society in which we live. We want good. We want the ultimate good for all people. It doesn't mean don't be patriotic. Shoot your leftover fireworks today and, and love your country and celebrate our independence and be patriotic. Love your country. Love God and country. Just make sure country's not your God. Because at the end of the day, our hope cannot rise and fall with a Supreme Court. Our hope is rooted in a supreme God because that is our identity. Care. Care. But don't care too much that it becomes who you are and whatever you see around you reflects your identity. Your hope won't last very long. It will be a bottle rocket in the night if you do not remember to whom you belong in the middle of crisis. So how do you respond when the culture's in crisis? Do you feel like your America is being taken away? Do you, do you run to Twitter and Facebook and respond with outrage? Do you just kind of throw in the towel and say, why care anymore? Hear the Spirit of our sovereign God whisper to you this morning, once you were not a people, but now you're mine. Care about your country, but make sure your hope is not of this world. Amen? The gospel reminds us of our identity, but then Peter shows us that the gospel reminds us of our responsibility. He ends verse 11 by talking about abstaining from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the unbelievers, the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's why, in fact, if you go back in verse 9, Peter even talks about that you have been made his possession for what? To display and proclaim the excellencies of him. Right here. Our responsibility 
as the people of God is not to win the argument. Our responsibility as the people of God is to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me bring it into application. Our responsibility of the people of God is not to win the argument on marriage and sexuality. Our responsibility of the people of, of the people of God is to show the world what biblical marriage and sexuality looks like. Our responsibility is not to win the argument on the existence of God. Our responsibility is to show the world what God looks like. I have put you as witnesses in this Roman culture to conduct yourselves among the unbelievers. Why? Because maybe not today, but one day they will glorify God when they smell the fragrance of Christ coming from your life. That's why you're here. That's why we're here. Cultural crisis provides us with a greater opportunity to be gospel witnesses. We don't want the cultural crisis. We don't want the eroding of biblical values. But when they come, we will see that not just as a tragedy, we will see that as an opportunity. Are you with me, people of God? Best example I could give you is how the AME church responded a couple of weeks ago after the death of their slain church members. In this horrific act, this tragic event, the response of the people of God was what? Outrage. No. The response of the people of God was hopelessness and despair. No. The response of the people of God was to get political and start talking about gun laws. No, the response of the people of God was to look in the face of their enemy and say, I forgive you. And not only do we forgive you, we want you to know Jesus. That's precisely what Peter is talking about, about how the people of God respond to crisis. What they do is they keep moving forward with their mission. They keep moving forward as witnesses because their identity is of God and He has placed them in the world to be witnesses for Him. That's not theological spin. Some of you may think, I think you're just trying to make a bad situation and spin it in a good light. No, no, no. This is precisely how Jesus taught his disciples to respond. Listen to Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 10. Luke 21, verse 10. Jesus said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and various famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So there's going to be all this persecution. There's going to be all this disaster. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So what are you going to do? You're going to fight. What are you going to do? You're going to give up. No, Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Did anybody respond that way a week ago? 
This is an opportunity. As, as unfortunate as it is, as wrong as it may be according to God's word, God has given the people of God an opportunity to shine brighter than ever the hope that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel reminds us of who we are, and it also reminds us of what we've been called to do. Why? You do know at the heart of the gospel is that God sent his son into the world, and he was, last time I read my Bible, the minority. But he shined light into darkness, and we're really grateful for that. Amen? So how will we conduct ourselves among the unbelievers according to verse 12? I'm going to give you four things. There are others. I may blog on these more, but I want to at least give you four things. The way the people of God respond is that we are witnesses. Our responsibility is to display the excellencies of Him in darkness. We shine the light of the gospel. How will we do that? At least four things. Number one is this. This won't shock you if you know me. But if we're going to be witnesses of the gospel in a culture that's in crisis, we must not compromise the gospel. Let me be very, very, very frank with you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say to the homosexual, and I'm going to say to the heterosexual, and I'm going to say to the drunkard, and I'm going to say to the greedy, and I'm going to say to the atheist, and I'm going to say to the religious, not I'm right and you're wrong. I'm going to say you must all be born again. We will be a fragrance of the gospel in the world because we will offer no hope for anyone, anyone at all, with a half-baked, watered-down gospel. Listen, almost good news is no good news at all. To be gospel witnesses, we will remain gospel-centered, amen, by the grace of God. Secondly, and this is really important, particularly for the evangelical community of which we are a part of, is that we will not, to be witnesses and conduct ourselves honorably, we will not stigmatize sin. Here's what I mean. And the evangelical community, I think at least at large, has not done a great job at this. We cannot say, well, there's those sins, but then there's these sins. There's me, and then there's those other people. We can't do that. Do you know why we can't do that? The cross of Jesus Christ will not allow us to. And do you know why the cross of Jesus Christ will not allow us to? Because the cross of Jesus Christ is for all sin. It's why Jesus is a friend to the woman at the well who had a very dark sexual past. She did anything but hold to God's design for marriage and sexuality. Yet Jesus is a friend to her, and at the same time, he is a friend to a tax collector, someone who is greedy and corrupt. Why is Jesus able to be a friend to all kinds of sinners? Because he knows he's going to go to the cross and die for all of it. The cross makes all of us equal, doesn't it? And there's not a lot that I want said about Berean that was said of Corinth, but I do want this said, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 9. 
Neither the sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here it is. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. If we're going to conduct ourselves honorably among the unbelievers, here's what we'll say. Do you know who's welcome at our church? Sinners. Sinners are welcome here. Of all struggle, of all stripes, of all context, sinners are welcome here to hear the good news of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Amen? Here's the third thing. To be witnesses of God in the culture is, and, and I, don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm a prophet, but I don't know what five years from now will look like. I really don't. But one of the ways that we will be witnesses, because it's precisely what Peter is saying to these Christians here, is this. We will embrace whatever suffering may come on account of the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers. He doesn't say if. When they speak against you as evildoers. They, they may call you bigots. They may call you narrow-minded. Who knows what the people of God may be called. But we will graciously embrace whatever suffering may come. Why? We are followers of a crucified man. He never said, come and follow me, it'll be really easy. He said, come and follow me and take up your cross. And he will call all of us in some way to bear the cross. Here's how Rick Warren says it. We must choose either the disapproval of the world or the disapproval of God. That may be verbal persecution from a family member, that may be legal persecution from a government. I don't know what this is going to mean, but if we're going to be gospel witnesses, suffering cannot keep us silent. Here's the fourth and final thing, is that we will not be one-sided in our mission. If we're going to conduct ourselves among the unbelievers honorably, we will not be one-sided in our mission. I take this from the last phrase of verse 12, and they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter is concerned about for these Christians is this, that their confession and their conduct are not in line. And so you confess Jesus is Lord, but yet you rage and you despair as though you have no hope. That's a problem. You have to live in the culture in a way that even though they may speak evil against you, they see the way in which you live and they cannot deny the consistency of your faith. Let me give you some application. This is important for us as a church. It's not enough for us to simply speak against, speak against abortion or speak for the right to life. If we're not also the people that would embrace the orphan, care for the single mom. You see, it's confession and it's conduct. 
We cannot be a people that simply speaks out about the biblical definition of marriage, though we do, if we're not also the kind of people that will love the homosexual, minister to the divorced, care for those with sexual addictions. It's confession and conduct. It's not enough for us to disagree with political leaders, hypothetically. I know it's rare that we would have any disagreement with political leaders, but if we're going to disagree, and it's okay to disagree right here, faith family, we're going to be the first ones on the front lines to pray for them. We will submit to authority graciously and disagree passionately. You see, it's confession. We will stand for what we believe, and we will back it up with the way in which we serve. Now, there is, it's interesting here that Peter goes into verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, and I read that and think, really? Given the political context therein? And Peter says, yeah, because submission to authority is not about do you agree with them? Do they believe what you believe? It's this, verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How's that for political correctness? You are to live in such a way, even under the authority God has placed over you, your confession lines up with your conduct. There's only one exception. Do you know what that exception is? When we do not submit to the authority that's above us, whether that's a parent, whether that's a a government, whether that's a, a, a pastor or whatever, it's this. When human authority calls us to compromise God's authority, we do not submit. Let me give you two quick examples. Remember Old Testament, Daniel? King Nebuchadnezzar comes to Daniel and he says, listen, you're gonna eat the food I tell you to eat. Daniel says, well, here's a problem. According to God's word, I'm only supposed to eat these things. I can't eat what God has told me not to eat. I won't. Remember when he says, I want you to bow before these golden statues. What do they say? I can't bow and worship something else. Remember in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5, they bring in the apostles and they say, listen, you got to stop telling everybody about this Jesus stuff. You got to stop preaching the gospel. And they beat them up and they send them back out. And what's the first thing they do? They start telling people about Jesus. We will submit graciously to the God-given authority that is over us until that authority calls us to compromise what God has commanded us to do. Minus that, God let our confession and our conduct line up that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me summarize it this way. On June 26, 2015, the law of the land concerning marriage changed. The mission of the church did not. Remember your identity And remember your responsibility to live as gospel salt and light in whatever circumstances you may be in. Church, look at me. I'm not afraid of this mission field. I'm not afraid of where God has called us to be at this place and time to display the excellencies of Him. You with me? Here's the last point. 
of how the gospel calls us to respond to a culture in crisis. It calls us to remember our liberty. This is a great truth for Fourth of July weekend, verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter is obviously not talking about political freedom. They didn't have that then. And praise God for the freedom that we have in our own country. It is a gift of grace that we have the freedoms that we have, even right now. But the freedom that Peter is talking about here is a higher freedom. It's a greater freedom, namely the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has set us free. And what that means is we're not a slave to anybody. We're not a slave to any group or any culture. It says this, when you know who you belong to, you're not a slave to anybody around you. When you know that you are a part of the kingdom of God and that it is going to advance regardless of the culture, you don't have to be a slave to whatever circumstances that you're in. The gospel frees us to live as servants because our future faith family has already been secured. Listen, the great, the ultimate, the supreme, supreme court has already ruled and it has ruled in your favor so nothing that happens in this world can take your hope away, you are free. So live in that freedom. Be that, be that fragrance of difference, that fragrance of counterculture in a culture that thinks it's been liberated, a culture that thinks it knows freedom and they smell a freedom in your life that they've never known. Live as free men, as free women, as servants of God on the mission of God. How are we to respond in a culture in crisis? We remember who we are. Right here, take a deep breath. Whatever is going on around you right now, you belong to God if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And let that so settle in you that it deepens your hope in the midst of crisis. And then, when that becomes settled, all of a sudden you begin to see around you a mission field. You don't outrage and you don't drive to despair. You see this as an opportunity to shine the light of the gospel And you're able to do that because of a deeper, greater freedom that you've experienced knowing that you stand before God in the right. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. That's greater than any firework show anywhere in America. So a week ago, after the decision has been announced, I'm driving in my car with my son. And I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about us as a faith family. And I'm thinking it could be really easy for our people to be given over to outrage. It could be really easy for our people to be given over to despair. And God gave me this thought. As I'm driving with my son. He wasn't driving. I was driving. 
so we'll get that clear. June 26, 2015 is not the first time a court ever made a wrong verdict. 2,000 years ago, a Roman court thought they were on the right side of history when they sentenced a man to death. History has proven them wrong. Jesus is alive and well. The Roman Empire is nowhere to be found. But when that crisis happened, the majority in the square celebrated and rejoiced. And the people of God hovered in an upper room trying to find their hope. Jesus looked at that Roman court decision right in the eyes and he did not rage. He did not despair. Do you know what he did? He fulfilled his father's mission. That's how the people of God respond in crisis. Let's pray. Father, we truly thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. I, I hope that I have shepherded this faith family well this morning in getting our minds right. We do not despair. We do not rage. We have hope no matter what. We are your people called to shine your light in whatever circumstances there may be because we have been set free. And I pray this morning, if there is one, as we have proclaimed your word, if there is one here that does not know the freedom that is only found in Jesus, it is not found in a court, it is not found in a culture, it is found only in Christ. This morning, would they receive that by faith and be free? Would you renew us, restore us, and encourage us in the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen.